Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Puzzle Islands podcast live on Discord number three. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be talking about alternatives to modern programming languages. I'm Vishal Makani. Uh, joining me today as a, on, the, on the host side of things is uh, CTO of Fission and uh, uh, programming language and distributed systems extraordinaire, Brooklyn Zelenka. Brooklyn, you want to say hello? Hey, folks. Um, usually Brooklyn would be like on the other side of this. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll have thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit weird on this side. Um, uh, and uh, we're also joined uh, by the person who puts together all these podcasts and all these recordings, uh, uh, Becky, who's uh, head of marketing uh, at, at Fission. Um, and before I introduce uh, the, speak the speaker speakers, we have maybe a speaker coming late today. Uh, we have one speaker on Ramsey Nazar. Before before I introduce Ramsey, Becky, you put this one together, and you were obviously very involved with Causal Islands, and really loved some of these talks. Do you want to kind of intro, you know, a little bit about uh, why we're doing this one and why why it's so interesting? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Ramsey, for um, agreeing to uh, come on this podcast. Um, you know, I I became familiar with your work, um, I guess it was a few months before Causal Islands. Um, and I, the way I found your work was through uh, the programming language Alp. Um, and I thought this was so interesting that you have this programming language that um, is in Arabic. And because it's not in uh, this like ASCII, like Latin-based alphabet, um, uh, from its foundation, there's actually a lot of really interesting things you can do with it. And I don't want to, you know, spoil anything that we'll be talking about today. But um, certain things like, like, I just started learning Arabic myself. And um, I think it's really interesting how the letters connect and how um, you can use that uh, when you're actually like, like aesthetically, like when you're coding and, and how how it all looks. Um, on screen as well, and and how um, there's such a beautiful tradition of like poetry in the Arabic language, and you can it's like it kind of the the calligraphy and the poetry kind of lend itself to um, the language that you've made. So all of that is to say is like I just I thought it was really interesting how language and culture um, are so intertwined, and I don't I think we don't think about that enough. Um, when it comes to computer languages, you know, we think about that when it comes to just us, you know, talking. Um, but it's also like, like culture is also really, really intertwined with like computer languages as well, um, for better or for worse, right? So um, that was what kind of inspired me uh, to initiate this and have this discussion. So thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And uh, for, for your kind words. And I'm, I'm glad that that work resonated with you. Uh, and and uh, best of luck on your journey learning Arabic. It's um, extremely grateful to, to, that I can understand uh, that language. And it's, it's a very gratifying um, like cultural body to engage with. So um, enjoy it. It's a long, long journey to learn languages. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty horrible at these, but uh, so yeah, Ramsey, do you want to give a little intro about yourself? Uh, particularly, uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, about Gulp. Gulp. I'm also totally mispronouncing that, but uh, 
I, I think it would be great for you to get give a little intro about yourself. Obviously, you have like a super varied background uh, through a lot of things, but then uh, kind of focus on how you kind of been focusing on on you know um, non non you know uh, you know working in languages that uh, aren't you know that yeah you know, as, as as Becky mentioned like have been from the kind of Latin paradigm in programming, uh, and you've been doing this for a while. Yeah, so. Um... I have a, a background in uh, computer science and art. Uh, I studied computer science at the American University of Beirut, and I studied, uh, I got an MFA at Parsons here in, in New York City. Um, so, and my MFA was in design and technology. So it was in sort of uh, art and like aesthetics around computing and, and technology. So um, always in and around computers for better or for worse uh, my whole life. Um, and uh, yeah, as you said, Deshaun, my uh, kind of all over the place in terms of my background. Uh, it, it all feels coherent to me. It all kind of comes from the same same place. But uh, I've been involved in um, video game development, um, programming language uh, development, like you know, c compiler uh, stuff, um, distributed systems design and development, uh, which I'm I'm getting into increasingly um, uh, at this stage of my career. Um, and, uh, in the last few years, I've also been involved in alternate, uh, like forms of labor organizing. So I do all my work these days through a worker cooperative that I founded with some others. Um, it's based in, in New York city as a, as a sort of a living experiment in a democratically managed, uh, democratic worker managed workplace. And it's been, that's been an incredibly gratifying, uh, experience. So. I feel like the same part of me that's tickled by compiler theory and reading virtual machine specifications is like similarly, I wouldn't say equally, but similarly tickled by reading the like arcane acts of Congress with respect to the, yeah. <laughs> the American tax code. Um, it's, it's, it's basically the, like a bat, the, the, the worst spec for the stupidest virtual machine ever made is how the, the tax system feels like here. But uh, th that's where a lot of my energy has gone the last, the last uh, year or two. Um, but that's, that's my, that's my background. Um, when it relates to the non, the unconventional or uh, you know, non-Latin programming, um, I guess that that really stems from my time at Parsons when I was uh, I'd started teaching them, and I was teaching processing mainly uh, to um, to non to, to people who did not have a programming background. Um, Hell yeah, and, it's processing uh, for sure. Though as a as a great learning language, uh, that's how I learned. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, it's 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 one of those things. I I feel like there are projects that are you know interesting or achieve certain goals, but then there are projects that I, I really think represent a contribution to uh, computing as a as a project. Uh, and processing is one of those. I think it's it's a sort of a before after moment for computing and the uh, approachability of, 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 of uh, programming to people who don't have a computer science background. Um, and it's really a phenomenal, with its own, like, it, you know, very interesting history, uh, you know, coming from design by numbers at, the, at MIT. And, um, but so I'm, I'm teaching processing to, to you know, non-programmers at, at Parsons as a second year, uh, teaching basically the incoming first years mm -hmm. um, uh, programming. And, uh, and also open frameworks is there and, and unity was also a very different beast at the time, but unity was also like, you know, um, this really interesting way to get into like making video games, uh, for people who didn't have that background. So there's like all this, like, um, sort of like language or, or rhetoric in the air about, um, 
democratizing computing, which is that's a word that gets thrown around, I think, more than it should. But and you would uh, say like it, those were like doma domains that were being democratized, right? In particular, right, like gaming and, and yeah. you know stuff and, and yeah, right, right. Visual, like yeah, like artistic aesthetic programming, and, and the idea was like, oh, we have built these tools that have made programming easier for everyone, and like everyone is in gigantic quotes, um, <laughs> and, and and you know to an extent that's like that's fair. The the tools had to sort of expanded access to more people, um, but I'm, you know, I studied computer science in Beirut. I grew up in Beirut, and I I learned Arabic before I learned English. Like it, it's my native language. Uh, and it's like immediately obvious to me that, oh, this is all English. <laughs> like all, all these programming languages are based on, they're so obviously based on English. When you say everyone, uh, you can't possibly mean all humans because not everyone speaks English. Most people, you know, don't speak English actually. Um, so, so that's, I think the jumping off point is the sort of question of like, who is everyone when we talk about bringing programming to everyone? Um, right. what, what are the things that make programming look the way that it does? Uh, and privilege a certain group of people over others, uh, and, and how can we sort of confront that and and uh, challenge it? Yeah, um, that's uh, obviously uh, you know a great, just a great kind of uh, leading off point to this. And uh, one question that I had before uh, um, opening it up, maybe to even some other questions, was I think when I, I was I was going back to one of your videos, and I'll try to link this in the notes, but. Uh, I think one of the opening videos when you were showcasing the language and I, you, you, it was like an opening where you, you had three algorithms implemented in the language. You had uh, Conway's Game of Life. You had uh, Fibonacci, right? I forget what the third one was. Um, but it was like, uh, I think when you first demoed this or first, uh, I, I guess, exhibited is, is the word I want to use here, uh, this work with, with, with Gold, you were, it was like in an art, it was like, you know, toward an art, you know, toward an art, experience an art exhibition. And so how do you think, obviously I've known your work, you've done a lot of work, obviously you did some live music stuff at uh, Cosmo Islands and elsewhere with Fennel and a lot of cool other in interesting kind of languages uh, that play on the esoteric spectrum. But where, like, how, how do you see where like art in particular, art tech, um, you know, and, and has have, have really kind of opened up avenues to showcase this kind of work that might not, have been like made it through easily in more academic or industrial uh, context. No, that, that's a great question. Um, so Elb was uh, um, it's it sometimes mistakenly I think people will refer to it as a master's work. It was not my master's work. Um, after mm -hmm. my um, after my MFA, uh, I was fortunate enough to be awarded a fellowship at the IBM uh, Art and Technology Center, uh, which is an incredible, incredible New York City institution. Where many, many of Ooh, my shout uh, out, shout out to yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my own like media art heroes passed through there, and um, so they supported me for a year. Uh, well, I was actually building a variety of things. I had not applied with this in mind, um, but halfway through my fellowship, it became clear that like this is actually what I wanted to to pursue and hack on. Uh, so yeah, so Elb was built in 2013 um at at ibeam and was first shown at the ibeam uh in the year artist showcase in in uh it was built in 2012 and was shown in 2013 um to the to your point uh, about the pronunciation it's sort of deliberately ambiguous uh the correct classical arabic translation is is kolb with a hard k uh in the levant right. where i'm from it's a glottal stop so we'd say elb um golb is how you'd say it in the gulf so that's also a valid uh a pronunciation 
Uh, but yeah, when it first came out, the like Hacker News thread about how to correctly even say this thing out loud was like very delicious for me to watch people sort of arguing with each other about like <laughs> whether the, the first letter is like with sort of like every Arab every Arab culture basically says it a little differently, which is part of why I chose it. Um, it's not, it's not they, just language; it's the dialect too, right? I mean, obviously, that's another sub. You know, it's like sub logic. It's structural logic to the to the same to the same language, right? Um, yeah, I mean, to 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 Becky's point about you know the relationship between language and culture, uh, I think Arabic does a. And I'll I'll get to your question about uh, the art context in a second, but I think Arabic does a really great job of confounding that because, um, you know, like one subtle kind of Western assumption is that, like you know, languages and cultures are much more closely intertwined. So in English, there's there are months and the months have names. There's only one set of names for the months. Um, that's absolutely not true in Arabic. Different Arab cultures, different Arabic-speaking people will have different names for the months, um, because Arabic—it's it, a—you know—covers a gigantic territory from Morocco to Kuwait, at the very least, North Africa and the Middle East, um, and there are just different people with different backgrounds that have different names for things, right? So, so yeah, we have different names for months. So every localization system that has like a sort of a pairing between. Uh, a language and a set of month names kind of falls apart for Arabic. Um, so there's like all of these like, you know, subtle cultural assumptions that, that are baked into, I think, computing um, that really stem from a particular Western culture. And, and the, the art context, honestly, is, was and I think remains the best way to ask those questions. Because um, it's like, Edib is not a, really an engineering project. I mean, I mean, I did build an interpreter, and like it was important that it be a real thing and not just like a speculative uh, a project, because I wanted the sort of the tool itself to sort of tell me what it needed to be, and I wanted the constraints to be real and, and not imagined. Um, but it's also like you know, from a software engineering perspective, it's absurd. Like you would never do this. There's no real reason to do it. Um, and we can talk uh, uh, later about why I think a project like Elb is sort of doomed by definition and can't ever really achieve uh, uh, super, super wide scale. Um, but there had been other Arabic programming languages before Elb. It also mistakenly gets described as the first Arabic programming language. That's not even close to true. I've never, I've never sort of credited right. that. Um, but there have been other languages that basically took the problem seriously. Like, okay, let's build a real production grade compiler and interpreter and development environment for Arabic and see how far we can get with it. And, you know, people tried. Um, but I think the art context is one within which I can sort of ask the question of, like, why is this impossible? And what, what are the bigger sort of pressures that make a certain kind of tool feasible and, and, and other tools in, infeasible? Um, so there's just a wider scope to art and, and an art practice, I think, than you have in engineering or, or, or other practices. Yeah, that's a great. Uh, that's a great. I mean, it's a, it's a great reasoning too. I mean, to your point, like uh, to have to build the entire thing, you would. It, it, it would. You know. I, I mean. Uh, I mean, when when John gets on, we'll talk about like you know long term lifelong projects in, in many yeah. ways, right? Um, but it would. You know, building to your point, building it from an engineering perspective would take. I mean, you know, you would run into so many as they as they probably have in the past. Run into so many issues. There's so many things to get right, and then so many things that can go wrong. Right to your to your point on this, where in an art context, you really can ask the questions and showcase certain idioms that really that really get people's attention. Right. 
Yeah, it's also the kind of um, the, the sort of the, the way that El fails is kind of its success, I think, or it's kind of the, it's kind of the point. Um, and I didn't like make it, you know, broken on purpose. It's it's a very real um, Lisp interpreter uh, that, in principle, should be usable, right? But for a, a variety of reasons that really only became obvious through building it and like watching it fall down. Um, that actually doesn't, that can't scale. Um, can, and, can you talk a little uh, bit about that, like in, in some details, or at least like maybe an example of some of those? Yeah, no, no, for, for, for sure. Um, so I get into this in detail in my, my 2019 um, uh, Deconstruct talk. So if, if, if this is interesting to anyone listening, uh, you should look, look up that talk. And I, 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 pick, I pick these ideas apart in depth there. But the sort of, uh, the summary of it is... Um, so, so the the problem. I actually went to Elb thinking that the main problem would be character encodings. Um, the the yeah. fact that um, you know everything is ASCII and should be Unicode, uh, and that's that's part of the problem. But that's like actually not really the, the the crux of it. The crux of it is that like programming is all about manipulating names, um, and there's no such thing as a as a culturally neutral name. Like, like you can't come up with a, a single name for something that does not carry the sort of cultural and linguistic assumptions of the person assigning the name. Um, so when you use a library, uh, you, or, or an API or an SDK or any body of code that someone else wrote, you actually have to use the exact names that they chose um, for all of their functions, all their constants, all of their classes, et cetera. Uh, so you're kind of forced into a linguistic collaboration with all these programmers that came before you and that you'd never met. Um, and even if like Elb was, I, I mean, Elb, you know, does function, but like in order for Elb to use the DOM API, right. Cause it runs in the browser, that's all English words. And you can't, you really use other words to invoke, you know, query selector all like that. You just have to use the, that sequence of characters actually to invoke that native function. Cause that's, in, that's what the spec says. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of stuck there like you can make a, a programming language with new keywords and with with a you know unicode instead of ascii but if you want to consume any software written in the last 50 years um you need to be able to engage with english language names um which means that a programming right. experience that is entirely not english is effectively impossible down that path um you know, short of a translation layer or something that basically forces you into being like a second class citizen. Um, so that's the sort of like summary of like the real wall that you that that I hit at least, um, and it sort of informed the next chapter of this research, which which I could also talk about. Oh, cool. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get back to that. Great. And that's, yeah, and to your point, like yeah, you have to you have to engage with everything built before, which has been kind of stuck in a certain has been just done in a certain way. Right. So <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, obviously that's a, that's a major, major problem. Um, that, you know, uh, working with preexisting stuff to your point, I think, uh, is super difficult. Um, do you, I mean, um, maybe you can talk a little bit about this and I know, you know, once we get John, John's voice on talking about the historical ramification of this, do you, do you want to, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you mentioned previous language attempts before. Um, is it, is, is the issue that, because now obviously, but particularly with the web, as we mentioned, like it's hard to now work with third party stuff or, uh, you know, things that are just dependent on like browsers that have, that have, you know, canonicalized toward English. 
did things go wrong somewhere? Could things have been done differently earlier where we thought about language much earlier? Um, this is kind of a hypothetical, but like, do you think that because we didn't start from the beginning, it makes it too, di- it makes it too difficult? That, that's a, that's a good, that's a good question. That's something that I've thought about is, um, yeah. Is there somewhere we could have zigged, um, where we should have zigged and we instead zagged? Um, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I have a sense of what, uh, I mean, basically the next chapter of this research is designing a programming language and a programming system that doesn't privilege one um, writing or like one language over any others. Uh, and I, I also get into a sketch of that in my, in my deconstruct talk. Um, but I mean, to do that, to the best of my understanding of how you would pull that off, you'd need access to technology that just did not exist in the 60s and the 70s when these foundations were being laid. Um, so, uh, you know, like the fact that the C programming language requires ASCII identifiers, you know, of course it does. Like, it was, you know, it was the, it was the early right. 70s. It was Unix. Uh, the web didn't exist. Like, none of this stuff existed. I really think it's just a bunch of engineers doing the best that they could with the resources that they had. Um, and the problem is, though, that, uh, you know, weirdly, despite not having any moving physical parts, uh, or maybe it's because it has no moving physical parts, uh, compu- computing it, software just has an enormous, enormous uh, inertia. Um, like, like, you know, I, I've, I've done like, like, like an example that I use is like, I've, I've worked on motorcycles, I've worked on old motorcycles and, and, and more recent motorcycles. Um, uh, and like one, uh, uh, the CB series in, in the, the Honda, uh, Honda has a, C- a series called the CBs and I've worked on old ones and new ones. And every year they just make completely new vehicles, right? They learn from the right. old stuff and they just start from scratch basically every year. Like maybe they use reused parts if they're useful, but they don't have to. Um, we can't really do that in, in software. Like I'm, I'm talking to you on Linux, which, you know, is a Unix system and still has a bunch of like POSIX tools, like, you know, many of which are older than I am. Um, and it's not just like the ideas that are living on. It's like the actual original software artifacts are all still like living and breathing. Um, and mod- and that's all of modern computing, right? So we're, I don't think that there's any obvious way that the engineers laying the foundations for modern computing in the 60s and 70s could have made it, uh, you know, non, non, um, not, non-hegemonic. Um, but we are sort of stuck with the limitations basically of the 70s in the present, which is, which is frustrating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Though I, I know we didn't take all the good parts. <laughs> from the seventies, maybe, but yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, I think uh, John, do you hear us? Can you speak now? Uh, I think I can. Can you hear me? <laughs> yep, we yes. can hear you. Dope. Uh, hey. Yeah. Dope. Um, yeah. I, thanks for joining, John. I had to switch. I had to switch my Discord from my laptop to my phone, uh, and then, of course, I I don't know where any of the controls are on my phone. <laughs> so I <laughs> no apologize. <worries>. Uh, <laughs> I know you're here. It's good. Um, kind of on the vibe of uh, linguistic collaboration, which I think is a great term that Ramsey brought up. Do you want to? Um, you've been you've been uh, working in linguistic collaboration for a while. Um, do you? Can you give us a little bit of like, intro yourself uh, and the work you've been doing with the Cree language? And uh, you know, we'll link your Cosmo Islands talk as well. But yeah, give us a little history of of your work in uh, linguistic collaboration and, and writing. Uh, esoteric programming languages. 
Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, I, I guess, well, my work started about seven, eight years ago and, uh, I came across Ramsey's, um, work, you know, fairly early on, uh, in my own research. Um, what I wanted to do was create a programming language for Cree, um, because that's my, my ancestral language and, uh, we have our own syllabary. So we have, um, a syllabic system. Uh, of writing that is is kind of unique. Um, my my biggest challenge was, you know, when I first started to kind of uh, bring that language back into my family, uh, you know, through self-oppression, my grandmother didn't speak it uh, and said that we were from France and that was the language that she would speak to my grandfather. And it wasn't French, it was Cree. Um, and uh, so I want to, you know, I want to bring that back into the family. And so I started learning Cree and, you know, I was so eager that very first day I go to class and I asked the elder because uh, they asked us as students, you know, what what words do you want to know? What is what is current to your context um, and what, what words can we provide? And I, you know, I put my hand up. And I'm like, what's the word for computer? We'll, we'll make it easy. Right. We'll just start from there. Cree doesn't have a word for computer. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, at that point, I realized that if you don't have a word for computer, how do you have words for things like network and, you know, uh, protocols and, um, you know, exchange files, uh, file names, you know, servers, you know, all of this technology jargon that we have, Cree doesn't have, um, Cree doesn't have those. So, um, um, one of the things that uh, I set out to do, I, I found that I, I couldn't do it. And that was the biggest challenge, right, was how do you communicate with a computer when there is no language that even knows, that acknowledges what that computer is, right, within the language? And um, that was that was a huge challenge. I had to change my my overall understanding of what a computer was in order to put it in the language, let alone come up with commands. And so um, programming in Cree wasn't a simple substitution of, you know, find the word for, you know, if or, you know, for next, um, you know, and these these programmatic concepts that I had, I had to find new ways of articulating those experiences within the computer to get it to function the way I wanted it to do. And um, it, it involved a lot of uh, cultural interaction. And it kind of to Ramsey's point, you can't undo or remove the cultures that built the languages and the computers and the systems and the technologies. Um, but uh, what I ended up doing was uh, I, my programming language is a, um, it's transcribed. I, I convert it. So I, I wrote it so that you can write in Cree. Um, and then I convert that to C-sharp code. And then that C-sharp code actually executes. Um, you know, it's all written in English. Um, but the but the Cree language part of it was was kind of the key part, because that was where, you know, we don't have. Uh, I asked, you know, questions of my elders, like if I see the, if it is nighttime, then I see the moon, or if it is daytime, then I see the sun, hoping to get back a translation that, you know, that reflected that if then kind of causality. And it, it doesn't, it says it is night. Um, I see the moon at night is, is the response, right? So when it's converted or translated into Cree, 
Um, and then I literally translate it back. The language that I'm getting back is is a statement. There is no if and there is no then. Um, okay. That made a problem, right, when I was trying to work with conditional statements. Um, and uh, so ultimately, I ended up going a different route. And I, I followed uh, some Alelo programming uh, group um, from Hawaii. Uh, from Hawaii, they They were translating C-sharp into Hawaiian. Um, they have the same problem that that if a equals b then c logic doesn't exist in Hawaiian. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, um, the syntax doesn't you know doesn't translate. Um, so they use the the term for river, um, and so you flow down a river, and then at a junction you take you know path a or path b um, within the logic of their programming you know language. Um, and water being important to Cree culture as well. Um, as it is to a lot of indigenous cultures, I think, um, around the world, not just in North America. Um, I, I like that. And so rivers became the, my if statement. Um, and then by extension, I said, well, this is the way I should be looking at programming, is taking the cultural relevance of what those functions are, what they represent, and finding something that's culturally significant that is, has meaning and can be represented in that way. And so my looping structures became winters because that's how we dictate age. Um, it's also a great metaphor for advancing. So when you think of a, a next loop, a for loop that does, uh, you know, for X equals one to 10, that, that loop is advancing every iteration, um, just like we age, we age year to year. And so we, you know, we advance in age. Um, and so I, I really like that metaphor. And then, um, I also took the idea of the variable, the variable just being a container that holds information, holds data. Um, that is, you know, I, I use different variable buckets, I call them, um, but there's a, a bucket or a, a bag, medicine bag. Um, right, lately, I've been using canoe um, because it fits the metaphor of the river better. So for every winter, I travel down the river in my canoe that has the number five in it. Uh, and I, mm -hmm. I, I do a validity, uh, validity check on that five at some point, and I take a smaller river on one way or another way, right? So in this way, um, culture becomes the center point of the language, and the uh, programming itself is a lot more aligned with storytelling than it is with programming. And that's ultimately, I think, what programming is for me and always has been a way of storytelling. It's just its syntax and its format that's that's different. So... Yeah, uh, no, that's that's really amazing, and I, um, yeah, kind of what I wanted to get at too, um, and uh, then we'll maybe open it up for some other questions. But this is both for you and Ramsey, I think. Is and what it seems like is obviously the language, the languages that you worked on themselves, obviously Cree and, and Arabic, they they taught you something else about syntax and language that you were presenting in, and and obviously, you know, like think. Yeah, as you mentioned, you came, both of you came from a place of knowing, you know, you know, regular, again, regular conventional programming and trying to decipher this kind of new way. It's, what did, what did the languages themselves teach you? I think I remember in, in, in Ramsey, you talk about in, 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 in one of the videos, like obviously the length of the sound. And I know in, in John and in your talk, you talked, to, you also use size, like the terms for different sizes of things, right? It becomes really important to how you think about uh, programming the context of of pre and 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 Arabic and in, in, in what you've created, how like how how much did you learn about how much did you learn about implementations going from the language back to kind of creating these programming languages and systems that you came to? Uh, I'll I'll start first. Um, 
The uh, one of the great things about the Cree language is it's morphemic, and so our language construction involves attaching um, prefixes and suffixes to uh, either a noun or a verb um, to alter the meaning of that noun or verb, right? And so uh, my example that I usually use is the atim. Uh, atim is the word for dog. Um, a mistatim, uh, mista being a prefix, um, is used to enlarge it um, or make it big, so it becomes a big dog. Um, in in context, it usually means horse, though, in Cree. Uh, and going the other direction, uh, atimosis, so using atim and then adding osis as a suffix, becomes a, it's a diminutive. It makes it smaller. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting way to look at um, making things bigger and smaller. So if you wanted to increase the size of the uh, of an array um, and your array was called a Tim, you can say, Mr. Tim, increase the size of my array, right? Or atomosis, decrease the size of my array. And I can do that with integer values or, or what have you. Um, it involves, uh, it, it, it does present some, I'll, I'll say illegal syntax in this, in, in, Cree language because I could literally go mista 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 Tim and add a whole bunch you know increasing the value you know considerably by just adding a whole bunch of suffixes. Um, what it, what it does internally within the programming language though is it it doesn't treat those individual tokens as individual tokens. It it, it involves taking a token and being able to manipulate the token to alter its uh, meaning and, and its function. So you can actually take, um, you know, you can take an integer and convert it to a string or make it larger, make it smaller. Um, you, you can change what it is, what it does, what it's called even, because the syntax of the language allows you to do that. You can also change the order. So there's no, uh, it's called free word, or, free word order, um, where the syntax doesn't have to follow you know, like 4x equals 1 to 10 has to follow that. You can't say x equals 1 to 10, 4 next, right? You can't rearrange those tokens in that sequence. Um, but in, in Cree, you can. So long as the all of the information is available on the single line, it doesn't matter what order it appears in usually. Um, there's usually some, some uh, uh, organization that happens, but usually you can alter those... Uh, two elements and it doesn't change the meaning of the sentence and it's still valid uh, within the language. Um, it was those types of ideas, you know, bring those in, bringing those into programming kind of opened up a whole new way of programming for me in particular, uh, because now I'm not thinking of things in these logical, you know, recipe style, line by line, token by token type formations. Um, it's a little bit more malleable than that. Uh, and that's that's the major takeaway that I got from working with my language and programming. Cool. Very cool. Ramsey? Uh, yeah. Um, it was... Uh, I, I sort of went out of my way to make Elba as, as boring as possible and, and as, as much of a straightforward, like, Lisp implementation as, as I could. Because, again, I was really interested in, like, like, looking for the cracks in the system. Um, so, you know, despite being extremely conservative and boring, Elb uncovers all kinds of like assumptions about, um, text editors. And like you said in the chat, even the, the URLs for like Elb, because like ALB is not the name of the project, right? Like Kof Lamba, like the only correct name for the project is in Arabic. And, you know, I think the GitHub URL is just hyphen, hyphen, hyphen. Like 
you know, just by showing up and like being boring, but in Arabic, everything starts falling apart. And, and that was its goal. So I didn't do nearly as much translation work uh, as, as, as John did. And actually, John, it, it was Cree Sharp that really kind of contextualized to me how, despite feeling very, you know, foreign and, and not Western and Arab culture is, is not really a Western culture. It, it, it has a closeness to the culture that produced computing that um, Cree, like, you know, indigenous uh, uh, um, North American cultures do not. And it kind of like, um, I don't know, I, I, I was reminded of that because we have a word for computer, right? We have a word for network. We have words for, for all that stuff. Um, just be, be, again, because, I, because we are on this side of the Atlantic and, and, and there is a closeness to, to Europe and, and, to, and to those Western cultures. But the, the one, um, uh, again, when I was building up, I was much more interested in like text and text encoding. So the one interesting thing that it does, which to my understanding is novel in programming language theory, is the, um, you can stretch out words in Elb and it's all semantically valid. Um, mm -hmm. so, so the way that works is, um, so Arabic is a cursive language, uh, and when you write it by hand, the distance between the letters that are joined is not semantic. You can make it as much or as little as you want, and that's often used to great artistic effect, and, uh, if anyone wants to drool over maps, look up Ottoman cartography. They do, like, some of the most beautiful maps in the Arabic script, I think, that I've ever seen, and they will, like, actually stretch out a, a, the label of a river to sort of follow the river that it's labeling uh, and it just reads perfectly like a single word if you're an Arabic reader. Um, so in Unicode, there's a character or there's a code point called the Tatwin, which looks like an underscore, um, but it's actually designed to, you can stick it in between Arabic letters and they'll render as if they were stretched out. Um, so the Elp parser actually looks out for that character and it doesn't treat it as white space because Right. You know, you can't have white, white space in the middle of your identifiers and you blow up your identifiers. It just, it kind of ignores it for the purposes of, of identifier parsing, if that makes sense. Um, so you can mm -hmm. stretch out um, uh, letters as long as you want, uh, which means that you can do a certain kind of uh, a justification uh, where instead of being light, uh, you know, left aligned or right aligned, you can do a tatwil aligned, where everything is just le left and right aligned, and you've actually stretched out the words uh, to fill the spaces, and it just looks gorgeous, especially in monospace. And it's like maybe my favorite like visual flourish of the whole project uh, is the fact that you can stretch out yeah. the, the, the letters. You're almost writing like inference rules right in the code or something like this, right? Like that that can yeah. be aligned very nicely, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just and and to, to Becky's earlier point about like language and culture, I mean something that I was interested in is I mean, like Arabs have a long history of kind of an adoration of text, but so do programmers. Like programmers like have a culture of text and we have deep, deep opinions about how to write text and how to present text. And we jokingly call them holy wars, quote unquote. So you know, draw draw whatever conclusions you want from that. Um <laughs> But but merging these two these two cultures, both of which have a, a history of like a textual mindfulness, uh, was a big part of like of of uh, certainly the aesthetics. That's 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 really that's a really awesome note. Um, uh, those are good things. I, but before we kind of move and move on to some other questions, uh, Brooke, did you did you want to bring up something? On, and also maybe we'll open up anybody in the audience who wants to maybe kind of ask something. 
Yeah. Uh, so, sorry, I, I, I'm not super great at, at jumping in while people are, are having back and forth banter. Um, uh, m- maybe to take the conversation in a like uh, similar but like slightly different direction. We spent a, a bunch of time talking about uh, high-level syntax, which is to- like totally useful, super interesting. Um, and it's amazing how like immediately brittle, you know, uh, you were saying, you know, even just changing the text encoding just breaks all of the editors and, and all of this stuff. Something I've always found really interesting about language is how it changes the way that you think hmm. and the way you approach problems. And really, you know, if you look at uh, computing, it's not just a product of the 70s. It's actually a, a product of the 19th century sort of, you know, Western European, you know, project. and even in a Western tradition, you know, as, as a North American, uh, you know, English speaker, uh, trying to, you know, take sort of newer ways of thinking about things, so, you know, postmodernism, et cetera, and applying them into uh, computing, both culturally, you know, it's almost like, you know, heretical to say, well, not, every, not everything you write has objective truth. And, uh, um, you know, it's still trying to pull back to, you know, effectively Turing machines and, you know, all, all of these, you know, very sort of, you know, objectivist ideas, or even that there can be, you know, I, I found it very interesting, John, you were saying, you know, uh, having uh, idea of, you know, if else branches and branchless programming is totally a thing, right? But you'd only really get into it if you start to dig really deep into sort of, you know, far reaches of certain corners of design, and it can often be more efficient, but we haven't been trained that way to think this this way by our culture. So I actually wonder, uh, and this is a question for, for both of you, what are the ways in which, you know, Cree or Arabic or other languages change the way that you think about things, and what would it, um, when you're writing in, in, in your languages, um, different approaches that you would take to problems? Like, does it change the way that you approach engineering problems as well. Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. I have a lot of, um, I'll tackle that last kind of comment first uh, with engineering. Um, one of the things I wanted to tackle uh, was our, you know, our use of the QWERTY keyboard. Uh, so in, in coding with Cree and putting the syllabics into the system, I didn't want to just map the the code we I mean the, our language the the word for syllabic in uh, in Cree translates as um, a spirit marker right and so there's there's at the level of written text um, it is it is still spirit right it, it comes from the spirit world and so um, to use this Western contraption of a QWERTY keyboard to type it in just seems kind of sacrilegious and. So I wanted to, you know, I created my own keyboard for specifically for the Cree syllabary um, as it's arranged. Usually in um, we, we have pedagogical tools and one of them is called the uh, Cree star chart. Um, so the, the, the syllabics are arranged kind of in this star formation. And uh, so I created a keyboard that mimics that star formation and uh, is is very intimately tied to culture and cultural teachings. There's a ton of embedded um, metaphor within that engineering of that particular device, right? Um, Now, 
when it comes to the actual uh, system, I mean, a lot of those things translate into things that happen in the computer as well. Uh, and I, I usually talk about my uh, smudge function, for example. Um, you know, I just noticed that when you are writing a program, I remember my earliest days writing um, uh, Apple Basic, you know, in the 1980s, um, you know, I was 10 or 11. And uh, I, we always started off with CLS, right, clear screen. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that. When you run a program, you want to, you know, I don't want any residual, um, you know, cached files and or anything like that. I want to clear the screen. I want to make sure that my speakers are reset and, um, and just prepare the system to run the program, right? So you're trying to free it of anything that uh, might obstruct that program from running. Um, but that we do those as ceremony within community, and, and we have a, a practice called a smudge, and that's exactly what it does. It, it's meant to clear your eyes, your clear your voice, clear your heart, clear your mind, uh, prepare you for the learning um, process that's going to happen. Right. So the very first call in any one of my programming languages is always a smudge, um, albeit it's in a digital format, but it carries that same concept and it does a digital formation of what uh what we do in real life translates it to a digital function that the computer also has to do uh, within its own context um and so when i think about these things that are trend that i'm translating from pre-culture into computing um it's not just finding you know fancy things that kind of equate to similarities they are they're mirrored versions just in a digital you know, digital format. Um, and I also use like uh, binaries. So we, we have a natural binary. Our language uses animacy. Uh, so have the, you know, um, words are animate or inanimate depending on what they're describing. And uh, so I don't speak of binary in, you know, the binary context of Cree is animacy. It's, it's animate or inanimate. Um, and I, I really like that because, you know, a zero in binary code is inanimate. Uh, doesn't do anything, doesn't go anywhere. Uh, whereas a one is your animate. It's it's open. Uh, it's open ended, uh, and it can continue in whatever direction it goes. Right. So, just those simple concepts. Um, and I always I jokingly say that that computing and computer programming in particular um, is inherently indigenous. Like the indigenous knowledges um, that I am finding within practices. Um, and a lot of those are just developed, and some of them are developed in, in Western contexts, or many of them are, um, are I can just naturally be um, viewed uh, in an Indigenous context without changing them, uh, and they're very valuable in that sense. Yeah, that's... Um, uh, I, I've, I, I've always looked to your work, John, for that, the sort of deep... Um, I don't want to say translational, but the sort of like like semantic is maybe what, what I'm looking for. The sort of like uh, meditation on those semantic differences. Um, mm -hmm. th th there isn't as much of it in in El um, again because I, I think there are um, there are more straightforward uh, translations for most constructs. Uh, there are more interesting ones that I sort of deliberately avoided to keep it as uh, you know conservative as possible. Uh, because it, it's slightly different goals. But the, the one wrinkle that I ran into was actually translating true and false. Um, so Elb is a lisp, and like, you know, you, you have uh, a bunch of atoms, and you need to support the notion of, of, of true and false. 
And um, I ended up going with uh, uh, Sah and Khata, which are really like right and wrong. Mm. Just the, conno- mm. the connotation just isn't right. And there are other words, but they start to connote like, like, like honesty and lying, which is also like not the vibe, right? So like just the, the simple concept of like, this is a true statement to your point of uh, uh, Brooklyn of like uh, sort of a very 19th century, very European, like, oh, well, there's truth. And then there's like falsehood and like through the sort of mechanisms of man, we can d- 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 split the world into those two categories. Um, even that I kind of struggled re- to, to translate. Uh, so I did end up going with, with, um, uh, Sahan Khata for for right and wrong for but that that still doesn't it doesn't hit my ear the right way it doesn't feel right but uh, I, I I don't I don't quite know what else um, I think you would maybe approach the whole thing differently right if you were like doing it from a from a semantic uh, semantically from Arabic from scratch uh, which is a perspective I don't actually have access to right I've been bilingual my whole life um, when I studied math. Uh, and computer science, the language of instruction was in English, despite it being in Beirut. So um, I have uncles who studied math and Arabic, and they have that, like, you know, uh, aunts and uncles and, and relatives who, who are much more in touch with a completely non-Western sort of uh, view of the world. But that, that's, that starts to get into the limitations of my own perceptions, honestly. It, that's, uh, that's humorous, actually, because you bring up um, I completely forgot. I also have that problem uh, in Cree with uh, true-false. Uh, so I use a, a word called tepwe, uh, which means in truth or uh, um, true. Um, it's just an agreement. Um, I couldn't find a suitable um, opposite to that. There is no false. Um, the closest I got was actually, uh, it's, it's uh, naspach, uh, which means contrary or opposite. Um, and so there's there's truth, and then there's the opposite, right? Um, there is a word for untruth, uh, which is also kind of opposite, but it doesn't carry that same thing. And so I I, I also struggled with that truth and false, um, uh, and 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 still do uh, much like your example. That's yeah, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you'd think those things would be you just knock them out real easy, but like those are the those are the stumbling blocks. Um, I, I also not in a programming context. Um, I, I had uh, you know I'm I'm old enough to have had a Nokia flip phone a thousand years ago, and um, <laughs> I I, had, I I would sort of switch it between English and Arabic, and I Nokia had a decent Arabic localizations, uh, and I was writing a long uh, text message, and I got an error when I tried to send it, and I, I recognized the error from the English UI, and in the English UI the error would have said the message you're sending is too long. Um, but the Arabic pop-up trans- would have translated to um, the message you're sending is very long. And I, I mm. paused for a second. I'm like, no, I know. I've been writing it for a long time. And then when I, think, when I thought about it, there actually isn't a way to say that X is too Y in Arabic. We just don't have that construct. Uh, you could say bigger than expected. You could say bigger than allowed. But you have to sort of compare it to something else. Um, so there are definitely these like semantic, like totally unobvious gaps, um, that because Elb is a lisp, I dodged most of them, uh, aside from true and false, I think was the big one. Um, but I think, uh, a language that's like more built out, I think you start to run into them more and more. Yeah, those yeah, are, I, those uh, are super great points. 
Those are great. I, I, I just want to add one more thing. Um, yeah, because it, when you mentioned mathematics, I, I, I also have a problem with that. Um, uh, Cree, in, in our language, uh, we, we have language uh, for numbers, obviously. Um, the, the challenging number, though, is the number for is is our word for nine, uh, which is Kega uh, Mitatat. Mitatat is the number for ten. Is the word for ten? Kega Mitatat literally translates as almost ten. We don't have a word for nine. We use uh, a filler, um, and that's just because cosmolo cosmologically speaking, we nine is not a significant number uh, within our context, and so within my um, within Cree Sharp. You can't type nine. Um, you, you nine has to either be ten minus one or eight plus one um, to get nine, uh, because I've removed the word um, from from that language, right? <laughs> so um, it was a wrench. Um, I, I I believe culturally speaking, it was brought in as a matter of trade, right? So when fur trade uh, and settlers started coming, they we needed nine in order to do proper accounting and bookkeeping. Um, but within the culture, within the community, nine is not necessary. Um, using almost 10 will, will fits the bill, but eight is also almost 10. And eight and a half is almost 10. Nine and a half is almost 10. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, when you mentioned mathematics, that's, uh, that's what made me think of that. <laughs> that that's amazing. It, it, it makes me think of just one thing I'll say, just so we don't st stay on this point for too long. But that, that's fascinating to hear. Um, we have a very different notion of t time and the passage of time in certainly in the Levant, I think in the Mediterranean in general. Um, I've heard it described as like, you know, polychronic versus monochronic time. Uh, but the sense of like, you know, if there's an event at eight, do you show up at eight? Uh, and in Lebanon, you don't, right? It's actually kind of rude to do that. You show up at 830, right? Um, or, or at nine. And this is like a fluency that I had to learn in America because I, I just late to everything and people get mad at me and I didn't, I didn't understand why. Um, but we, in this isn't classical Arabic, but in Lebanese Arabic, we use the same word uh, to mean tomorrow uh, as we do for the word for eventually. So we say Bukhara mm. might mean tomorrow or it might mean at some point in the future, right? Um, and, and the sort of like, there's a there's a, a, a maybe a, a fetishization of precision that I feel like uh, non-Western European cultures uh, don't necessarily have, and the sense of like we've actually built enough constructs, like that's precise enough for our cultural needs, right? Um, and and um, sort of feeding that into a computer, I think, then becomes a challenge. But uh, not having a, a a way to say like nine is is that that's a, that's amazing, John. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hang on to that one. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, Becky had a question uh, from from uh, from the audience. But Becky, do you want to do you want to ask your question? Hello. Yes. <laughs> um, so th thank you both so much. This is so fascinating. Um, my question is so so I'm actually I'm a language nerd, <laughs> and I've been studying um, ancient Egyptian as well um, since like the pandemic started. And I, my question is, how would you approach um, a language that is like pictorial, that's like hieroglyphs, right? Um, when when programming uh, or making a programming language um, with with ancient Egyptian, it's so interesting because there's this interplay with um, the art 
um, as well as the the words. Um, like if you're looking at a at a tomb uh, painting, <laughs> you can they they interact with each other in a way that like if a person is making an offering, like a, like a pharaoh is making an offering to a god, the words are written in the direction of that action because you can write left to right, right to left, or top to bottom. Um, and then the person or the God that's receiving that offering is bestowing blessings on the Pharaoh. And so the, the words explaining this are going from now right to left, right? Or like the opposite direction uh, towards, towards where, again, where that action is going. So it just makes me think like, you know, we don't really have a way to go. Um, I guess I, with Elb, you, you're able to go right to left. Um, and you can go left to right, but can you go top to bottom? And how does all that work? You know, so these are just questions that are popping up in my head. I wonder if y'all have any thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, I have a, a lot of thoughts on orthography. Um, Elb is, it's not that you can go from right to left. You have to go right to left. Arabic is not legible um, unless it's uh, written right to left. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so... Um, the, the the interplay between like writing and art is um, is central central to Arabic as a language. Uh, we, we don't have a word for calligraphy uh, because it's so central to writing. The, uh, the closest, or I mean, the word that is used is is khat, which just means line. Um, so so the act of making marks on a page, the act of make the making lines on a page is calligraphy, right? There, there isn't. There isn't really a distinction. The like, the kind of handwriting that you just do casually in your notebook, and the stuff you'd see on like mosques and palaces, they're sort of different gradations of the same category of thing. They're not different sort of things as far as Arabic is concerned, um, and none of that survives in the translation to computers, unfortunately. Um, typing Arabic on a keyboard is absolutely miserable. Um, it's like you know watching a movie that was shot on IMAX, you know, on a, on a cell phone held at like arm's length, right? It's just, it's just like not, it's, it's so far from the intended experience of a language. Um, on my Android device, I actually have, a, they, they, modern Android systems have really good handwriting recognition for Arabic. Um, and that's the only thing that I use to input Arabic. And it is an absolute joy um, because the writing system, you know, as it exists on computers, uh, you have a sequence of letters that are sort of plopped down next to each other and they're sort of joined. And that's 10% of like what Arabic as a written language is. It is it's full of flourishes and, and tricks and playfulness and like all kinds of ways you can tuck letters in and out of each other and like put words on top of each other sometimes. It's technically a two-dimensional language because some of the, the letters don't all stack horizontally. Some of them are technically supposed to stack vertically. But all of this just gets basically ignored. Uh, for for the interest of make of making something that is passably legible on a computer, um, and that to me is the big heartbreak, right? Because um, we just kind of gave up. And Arabic on computers is legible, but it's not playful. It's not beautiful. Um, we can't actually do what uh, Ottoman cartography did on modern web mapping. Like that's just inexpressible, uh, given how like text has to be rendered on a, on on a modern web map. Um, so for for other languages that are you know that deeply intertwined, they're like artistry and and writing. I would worry that like computers 
you know, as much as we like to think of them as these like all-powerful modern machines, they're actually quite limited. Um, and the limitations really start to show, I think, when you when you when you get into uh, um, you know cultures that have different relationships with their text. So th th that was my experience with that in in with Arabic. Um, yeah, I have uh, like Ramsey. I, I have a lot of um, comments and ideas around uh, language construction. Um, I don't know how much of, uh, of the project I can. Uh, I'm working on a project right now with Daniel Temkin um, that is a conlang, so it's a constructed language that's also a programming language. And um, some of these ideas of being able, uh, where directionality is a, is a thing uh, within writing and the orthography and how it can be represented within a space. Um, and what those directions mean and how they can change what, you know, what the instructions actually are, are things that, you know, um, we're, we're thinking through. And it's, uh, there are, uh, there is an indigenous hieroglyphic language, uh, I want to say 16th century, um, that used pictographs. Uh, so, you know, similar to rock paintings or rock markings, um, and and those are they're not necessarily left to right or right to left, um, although they usually are arranged in uh, relationship to direction. Um, so north, south, east, and west. And east in Cree um, is is the direction of the sun. Uh, it's the direction of knowledge. Um, and so we are we arrange a lot of things to the eastern direction. Um, but in in you know other indigenous cultures in North America, we we have other arrangements where arranging something north to south um, is important for a given reason within that context. And so, as you're mentioning about the hieroglyphics being, you know, the direction was specific to um, the participants and 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 the activity that was being undertaken. Um, those those things do happen in 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 you know, North American, uh, like First Nations and Indigenous communities, where that direction is important. Um, and so finding a way to represent that uh, within the computer is something that uh, I'm kind of actively looking at. I don't know what that does, that's actually going to look like, but um, those are certainly things that uh, I don't know how many other people uh, out there are were interested in, in, you know, tackling some of those. I know some other languages. Um, uh, Piat uh, comes to mind because uh, it's directional uh, and it's for creating graphics. You, the program itself is a graphic, um, but it's uh, it also is directional, so you can um, create a pathing through the program. Um, so it goes up and down or left and right uh, based on the instructions that are within the program. Um, and then so those ideas, right? So if if you're just looking at a hieroglyph as a marker as a symbol. Uh, for something, and within that symbol, there are other symbols that tell you directionality and, and meaning or context. Um, those are interesting within a programming context because they can um, open up new ways of, I think, of writing code um, and, and understanding what that code actually represents. Um, categorizing it also within the code is, uh, is, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there. That's a, that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure. There, there's a program, a live coding music programming language called Orca, that is also two dimensional in the way that you're you're describing, John, uh, where it's ASCII, but 
every command is a single character, and you're basically inputting them into a grid of characters, and um, they affect each other in a two-dimensional way. Like, certain characters will actually create other characters that'll travel, uh, you know, horizontally or vertically, and, and, and trigger different, like, notes on synthesizers and stuff. Um, but that's the closest sort of practical system that, that uh, comes to mind. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to make a note of that one. Yeah, it's very cool. Thanks. Yeah, Orca is very, very cool. I've seen those. Well, yeah, I, I, one thing I wanted to kind of say to all this is like, I, I think it just showcases the importance to the semantic semantics of programming. I mean, you know, obviously in, in logic and like programming language theory, there's so much in the study of like, how do you equate programs or logics, right? Um, that could look completely different. I mean, there's a great, uh, somebody reminded me recently of a talk by um, Guy Steele where he goes through the history of um, lang- um, like in papers, in programming language papers, and like particularly looking at like rules uh, and the syntax of rules, typically in Greek letters. Um, all the all the differences were like papers talk about the same program structures, but do so completely differently syntactically, and yet mm-hmm. try to convey the same meaning. It's a great kind of historical. Uh, view he gave, I think, was at the like two keynote, like one of the closure conferences one year, um, and it just showcases like how varied this stuff is. I mean, I think you uh, you all mentioned or Ramsey, I think you mentioned time in languages. We don't even have a lot of great concepts in in like conventional programming for working with time as a first class citizen, right? right. Um, you know, you and I have talked about Chuck, you know, numerous times in the past, right? Another audio yep. oriented language. Um, and so I think you know like all these all these concepts of semantics, like you know, you know where you know, um, you know classical logic has negation, but propositional logic does not. Like all these kind of things are just really interesting. How we you know even even in conventional logics that we've had, and then now when you add so many more layers from culture, it even gets it's yeah. even more complicated. Like how do you how could you equate programs across languages and logics at the same time? Right, that would be like a Maybe a forever, forever PhD. Um, but those are kind of interesting things that come out as well, right? Because we even even now there's papers in conventional languages trying to like equate the like figured syntax, Python list versus for comprehension. That was a really cool paper from a few years ago, looking at the semantic meaning of sugar. And again, now now how do we apply that for languages that like like that John is working in, that you're working in, Ramsey, right? These are that you know, like between sugar and that, and then, then another language, another translation of the semantic layer. Um, that just seems like I mean, it, it seems fascinating, but it also seems like uh, yeah, very very hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and how do you do that? I mean, my my instinct as a computer scientist is like, well, everything compiles down to something, and then we make the comparison at a lower level. But um, if that lower level I mean, that lower level is going to have some semantic bias, right? It's going to, you know, afford certain things and not afford other things. And, um, like, what is that lower level? And, like, how, how do you construct one that doesn't close the doors on potentially, like, other cultures and their way of thinking about time and uh, uh, truthfulness and, you know, and, and, and falsehood and, and all that? Um, yeah, that sounds like multiple PhDs above my pay grade. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you kind of hit up there is that, you know, uh, there is already a syntactic bias. Um, yeah. You try to get rid of all that, go to some semantic core layer, but the problem is semantic bias that incorporates culture, incorporates all those other things, right? And I think that's, yeah, another, yeah it's, like a, it's truly the onion of, of the thing. Um, 
Uh, I want to open it up for the audience to any other questions. I don't want to go too much longer, uh, but we've had a great stuff so far. But I'm guessing people in the audience might have something. We've had a really lively chat as well. One other question I had was um, with the the word inshallah um, in Arabic and um, this idea of like something that you know you're planning for the future, but uh, you know it's it's literally translated to like like God willing, right? <laughs> so is is that something that can be expressed? in a programming language, this might go back to the conversation of if-then statements and how tricky those are. Um, but I wonder if you could talk, Ramsey, about that. Yeah, um, so so it's actually three words. Um, it's okay. in, I think so. <laughs> yeah. it's in, which in this context means if, uh, which is an old word meaning you know, to desire, and then Allah, which is God. So in insha'Allah, if, if God wills. Um, and it's, uh, but yeah, but, but the connotation is, it's, it's one of like hopefulness and an, uh, uncertainty about the future, right? Uh, you'll say inshallah for everything in Arabic. Like, um, <clears throat> like I was talking to my folks yesterday and we're like, all right, let's, well, we'll talk again this weekend and you'll say inshallah, right? So it's like, it's cause like, who knows what could happen between now and then. Um, it's, it's like an acknowledging, an acknowledgement that the future is kind of uncertain. Um, which also tracks with like a lot of you know distributed system stuff where you you make a request and like are you gonna get a response? Inshallah, I don't know. I hope so. Um, is it gonna time out? Inshallah, not. Uh, like, you know, I hope not. Um, Arab does not play with that. Uh, Arab uses the word either uh, for if, which is more generally means if instead of the the in that's in, in inshallah. Um. I did a, a, a museum installation, though. Um, I wrote the back end for it. Um, and at the start of every show, the cons and the console, it just prints out, let's have a good show, inshallah. Uh, just because, you know, all kinds of things could go wrong, and I just want to kind of express a sort of uncertainty <laughs> about, about uh, or, or almost like a humility in the face of like things that could like, go wrong. Um, that's the one time I've snuck an inshallah into my work. So there's a, a museum in Philadelphia where in the basement there's a server just printing out inshallah a couple times a day. Um, but uh, I, I, it is a much bigger thing to unpack, uh, and I'm happy to do it if it's interesting. But, but there is also a difference between Arab culture and Islamic culture. Uh, there's a big overlap between the two. Um, and I, I am a Muslim, but uh, it was important to me that Elb um, really be about Arabic and Arab culture and not specifically Islamic culture. Um, so something that you would also do that I also almost did for Elb, sort of in line with Inshallah, there's another similarly Islamic phrase, which is Bismillah uh, ar-Rahman uh, ar-Rahim, which is in the name of God, the benevolent and merciful. Um, and many religious Muslims will put that phrase at the top of every legal document. Uh, they'll say it when they enter a room. It's basically like a, like an, uh, it, it's sort of, um, it's like the opening thing you do when you're about to begin an activity. Um, it's so common that it's actually encoded in Unicode as a single code point. Um, so you don't even have to type the whole phrase out. There's one glyph basically that is a cal calligraphic representation of that whole phrase. Um, I thought of making Elb uh, programs begin with that, which would be totally idiomatic. 
but again, that starts to get into like, oh, this is Arab Muslim culture and not just Arab Arab culture, uh, which includes Arab Christians and Arab Jews and, and Arab atheists and agnostics like myself. Um, so that's a sort of a fine line to walk. But but yeah, Elb is an Arabic and, and not a not an Islamic project deliberately. Yeah, if um, just quickly, uh, yeah, in, in Cree culture, uh, we don't we don't have a word for goodbye. Uh, so there could because there is no end. Right. We 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 go through life in stages uh, and, and afterlife is a stage. And so there's no beginning and there's no end to time. Uh, so, again, we also have a different view of what time is. Um, and so we don't have a word for goodbye because there's never a goodbye. We always say something like later, uh, see you then, um, you know, uh, see or that's all for now uh, is another common one. Um, so, yeah, we, we have very, very similar ideas about um, not terminating uh, conversation, so to speak. Um, it's just uh, sometimes preserved for, you know, an, another point in the in the future. Um, so all programs should run forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we solved the halting problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a semantic yeah. view. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, not to go too long here. I, one thing I want to kind of end on, and we talked a little bit about the future of these uh, of these works that both of you all are working on. Maybe we can, maybe uh, each of you can talk a little bit about where you're taking the work. Um, and then, then, you know, obviously we'll have all the links and stuff and people can kind of go further, but like where they can keep up with you, but like where, where are things going, uh, respectively? Uh, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so I'm, I'm just nearing the end of my dissertation that kind of outlines, uh, you know, everything I've kind of worked on for the past, um, I'm getting close to six and a half years now. Um, and, uh, where it's going to go from here is actually, defining a little bit more concrete what uh, an indigenous computing theory is. Uh, that's ultimately what I've ended up focusing on. So what does that mean? What does it entail? Um, and uh, can it be used as a template for other indigenous uh, groups? Uh, we don't all have the same uh, cultural belief systems and languages and, and whatnot, but there's a, a fairly significant portion uh, of our daily practices and our belief systems and cosmologies that intersect. Um, so uh, it's possible that, you know, a, a pan-Indigenous computing theory um, can be a thing. Uh, and that's that's where my work is heading, is uh, not just sitting at the programming level anymore, but reconceptualizing computing in, in just general terms and, um, uh, and putting it into contexts that are more accessible to indigenous people using um you know their real world experiences uh from within their culture and, and how they interact with the world is is at times considerably different than how we do it in a western context so uh, that's where my work's heading um yeah so so I, I'm uh, where I got to with, with Elb was the conclusion that um, making a programming language or, or adding one programming language to the pantheon of programming languages was like I was, that was sort of never the goal. And um, Elb sort of gave me the language to sort of really identify what like why that sh shouldn't be the goal and can't be the goal. Um, so the sort of next 
uh, a phase of that project is designing a programming language that is uh, not anchored in any uh, written culture, um, that an English-speaking programmer and a French-speaking programmer and an Arabic-speaking programmer and a Tamil, even potentially a, you know, a, a Cree, and um, everyone can sort of program in their own languages and have the system like, you know, uh, uh, work and be able to collaborate. So I can pull in French uh, libraries and, and, and Cree libraries to my Arabic program and, you know, maybe wrap that up into a library that I export that is then used by English-speaking programmers. Um, so I have designs for that. Um, it's actually, I also get into it in my, in my, in my, um, uh, my deconstruct talk. Uh, and the, the reason that stalled is that right after that talk, uh, COVID happened. So, so, so the, the world ended, which sort of slowed, slowed me down somewhat. Um, but that's still, that is, that the basic design that I described, this still feels sound to me. And it's, there are other non-culturally cited tools that work in a similar way. There's a programming language called Unison. Um, that is really, really interesting. Uh, and, and you get really interesting distributed systems properties when you stop anchoring your programming in a particular language. Uh, and code just becomes these like hash values that sort of float around and everything compiles down to WebAssembly. Um, so that's the next chapter, is a sort of language agnostic language, which doesn't really have a name and sort of by definition can't have a name. Um, but um, that's, uh, that's still sort of active research for me. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, a lot of thoughts there. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and cool. And thank you both. I, you know, I, I don't want to make it go over long here. I mean, there's also a whole part in uh, John's Congo Islands talk where we talk about the open sourcing of the language and the issues there within. Um, I don't, I, you know, like it's super deep. Uh, I, I, I tell people to go, go watch that part of the talk as well. And you know, how we share these things is also super important and more complicated than you would think. Um, but yeah, I want to thank you both, uh, John and Ramsey, for, for just, A, amazing, amazing work, uh, and then making everyone aware of all this work, uh, which is equally as important. And I um, just a big thank you for that and, uh, and for coming on here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me too.